Hello, welcome to Dying to Talk. I'm Buddy Feneff, a fourth-generation funeral director in New Hampshire and the owner of Feneff Funeral Homes and Crematorium and the founder of the Cremation Society of New Hampshire. My co-hosts today are Mandy Damaris and Madison Smith, both longtime funeral directors with our firm. Hello, I'm Mandy. Thanks for joining us on Dying to Talk. Hi, I'm Madison. We're excited to discuss some frequently asked questions about the funeral industry. Dying to Talk is a lighthearted and upbeat discussion of those topics no one really wants to talk about. Each episode, we will choose a subject that is related to funeral service, the cremation process, or death and dying. We're going to be talking to attorney Frank Mesmer, and he is an attorney here in Manchester. We're going to be talking about estate, wills, trusts, probate, and all the pitfalls associated with with, um, and we know this uh, firsthand, of course, ladies, right? Um, yes, yeah. Mm-hmm. Having a will is so important. It is. Attorney Mesmer, welcome to Dying to Talk. Thanks, buddy. Well, we have, um, we have a lot of questions because as Mandy and Madison and myself know, we deal with grieving families all the time that think of us as attorneys and they are asking us questions about wills and probates and trusts, and of course we defer them to um, to their own attorneys. But there is so much misinformation out there. Um, so let's let me let's sort of bring it. When someone passes away, let's talk about you know, just in general the probate process. What is that? Why do they do it? If you can just sort of in you know in twenty minutes or less, sort of explain, <laughs> explain explain the whole process of, of probate. Well, uh, probate is the ancient system for administering the estate when somebody dies. And it applies if you have a will or if you don't have a will. Someone has to come forward and petition the probate court asking to be appointed to be the fiduciary of the estate. If you have a will, uh, that person might be the executor. When there is no will, they're called an administrator. Either way, they're a fiduciary. They're held to a high standard of account. The petition also says how much the estate is worth, ballpark, usually a couple hundred thousand dollars. The court will say, sure, yes, you can be appointed right after you post your bond, which is an insurance product to make sure you don't run off with the money. (laughs) After you post the bond, you get your certificate and some deadlines first to file an inventory within 90 days detailing all the assets and their value, and then 12 months to file an accounting that says what happened to all of the inventory value. We sold some stuff. We paid all these bills. We've listed them in detail on this accounting. Here's how much is left. We're about to distribute to the beneficiaries subject to the court's approval. Very basic question regarding this that I get all the time from families. My mother didn't have an estate. And I've been told if you have a dollar to your name, you have an estate. Well, if mom had a car, even if it's a used car, not worth too much, hard to transfer that car because... No one has the authority to sign the title until they're appointed by the probate court. Same thing with a bank account. So even the smallest amount of bank account assets usually need to go through probate so they can be transferred to heirs or beneficiaries. 
So based on what you, you just mentioned, probate is not a short, quick process in New Hampshire. It usually takes about a year. Uh, we try to get it done inside of six, uh, 12 months because we don't want to have to renew our bond. Mm. Uh, and the estate has to stay open for a minimum of six months, allowing claimants to come forward, whether they are creditors or unhappy heirs, kind of like a short statute of limitations. Well, what happens if at the end of the probate process, and once all those creditors come forward, what if, what if there's a negative, what the estate is worth? There's more debt than assets. What happens to those debts? That's called an insolvent estate. And uh, in these recent years, there have been quite a few of these where we report to the probate court that there aren't enough assets to pay all the bills. Sometimes there's enough money to pay a proportionate uh, pro rata amount, which we would indicate on a list. Sometimes there's just a whole lot of nothing and uh, people don't get paid. So there's always the question that I've gotten, oh, my mom passed away and I want to use her credit card to pay for the funeral. Or her checking account. Or her checking right, account. I want to write a check on mom's account. It's That's sort of a no-no, isn't it? Not a good idea not because good. the person is not authorized unless their name is on the account. Sometimes mom will put daughter's name on the account as a joint tenant. If that happens, then daughter now owns the account. Mm -hmm. It's her money. It's up to her whether she wants to pay mom's bills with her money. Mm. Is that you know being on the account the same thing as being a signer on the account? Um, sort of. It kind of depends on how the account is set up. Usually moms and daughters will do that as a joint tenancy mm -hmm. account. Daughter gets it by right of survivorship. Gotcha. So can you, can you talk about, I mean, as we just discussed, probate is very long. I guess it could be costly, and it's certainly, it's public. I mean, you see in the paper all the time, people probate, you can go sit and find out how much your neighbor had or how much they owed. Is there... What's the workaround if people do not want to go through probate court at the time of passing? Well, a guy wrote a book, How to Avoid Probate, with an exclamation point. This is about 30 years ago, and he made popular the other ancient alternative for administering estates, which is the trust. So now lots of people get a trust, which is just like a will. It says, who gets my stuff and who's going to be in charge, which is the successor trustee. And the trust can avoid probate because you would put your assets in the trust now. So if you own a house, you would deed it to yourself as trustee of your trust and record it at the registry. Now we have a public record. That trust, that real estate is in the trust. Whoever is the successor trustee, the person you would name as an executor of your will, is already authorized because you name them in your trust, the real estate is in the trust. Now, if you got dead or disabled. <laughs> <laughs> I hate when I get dead. Your successor trustee could step right up and take action right away without having, without having to get permission from the probate court. That's how that works. That sounds like that's the way to go if you want to do the legwork and, and, and all the prep. It's very popular. Mm -hmm. On average, if you can maybe give us a ballpark range, how much does it cost to set up a trust? 
Well, depending if you're married or single, depending on how much real estate you own, uh, it can cost um, usually starting at around 800 bucks because it's not just a trust, it's a, it's a pile of paper. You get mm -hmm. other things like advanced directives and powers of attorney and, and um, documents that say I'm putting all my stuff in my trust, stuff like that. And uh, if people have real estate, they need to make deeds. Sometimes people have real estate in many states, like New Hampshire, Florida, Maine. In that case, good idea to have a trust so you don't have to do probate in more than one state. But you don't need multiple trusts, correct? That'll, that'll, that'll be valid in all those states? One trust, but multiple deeds. Multiple deeds. Okay. So to, to, to circle back from Madison's question, someone has a... Average estate, your you know middle income family. What what would it cost about to? to I'd say uh, between thirteen hundred and fifteen hundred. Oh, okay, depending um, on how much real estate. But you said there's other things included in that, like the advanced directives. We had a show a couple weeks ago about advanced directives. That's something you would help them set up. Good idea to have. Yeah. So if if you have a trust, does that mean you don't have to have a will? Is a trust sort of the de facto will, or not necessarily? The trust is a will substitute. It does all the things that a will would do. The reason why when you get a trust, you would also get a will, comes with it, it's called a pour over. It says, I hereby leave all my stuff to my trust. Just in case there's some asset you forgot to put in there, like your winning Powerball, <laughs> the will would put that in your trust. So it's a good idea to have a trust and a will. It's sort of wearing like a belt and suspenders. <laughs> yes. The will is a backup belt and suspenders right. that hopefully would never be needed. Okay. Aside from looking really silly. <laughs> so um, how about things like life insurance, 401ks, retirement plans? Are those generally part of either probate or a trust? Are those, um, I know we've had situations where they have become part of the estate, but sometimes not part of the estate. Can you can you sort of, because we deal with obviously many, many people that have life insurance and in some cases are, uh, the funds are not readily accessible, in other cases they are. Well, say you had a life insurance policy and you named your spouse as the primary beneficiary, mm -hmm. but your spouse predeceased you and now you died. Now the life insurance proceeds are floating around unaccounted for. So you would want to name your spouse as primary and name your trust as a secondary beneficiary so that the proceeds would go into the trust and be administered by the trust as you've set it out for your beneficiaries. Now, can we, we talk about wills for a second? What makes a, a, a valid will? And I know it's state, I'm assuming state by state is some specific requirements and different uh, different regulations, but how about in New Hampshire? What what makes a a will valid and, and not? Uh, because we've you know we've oftentimes dealt with families and they've said, oh my dad told me that you know he wants me to have this or I'm supposed to be in charge of the arrangements or I'm going to be getting his cremated remains. He put it in his will or he wrote me a letter or he told me on his deathbed. So how how does that all become legal? First, it needs to be in writing. Good idea. Secondly it needs usually to be witnessed 
in New Hampshire, we have a provision called self-proving will, which means you don't have to bring the witness into the probate court if you have two witnesses and a notary signing off on an oath that has four parts that uh, the person signed this of their free will for the purpose expressed in it. We all signed in each other's presence and the person is eight, at least 18 years of age and of sound mind and under no constraint or undue influence. When you have those things, then all you have to do is submit the will and it's automatically accepted. So long as it's the original. So how do you, how do you determine if it's the original? Uh, usually by blue ink <laughs> <laughs> on the signatures. Okay. I have a question. You said it takes about a year to go through probate. What happens when people set out their, they never set them out with the funeral home, but they set out their funeral wishes in a will? How, how does that play out as far as funding? Right, because they're not going to have it for a year. Or even honoring their wishes, right. which the will, the will may, not be, may not be read weeks or months. Uh, setting out all your funeral planning in a will is usually not the best way to go because the executor might not follow it. In fact, executor might not even find out about the will until after the funeral. Mm -hmm. uh, if you want your funeral plan to be followed properly, I probably shouldn't say this at a funeral home, but uh, you should probably pre-plan with the funeral home. What a great idea. <laughs> Novel concept. <laughs> um, because as you mentioned, the executor, A, may not know, or B, um, depending on the family dynamics, which of course every family gets along wonderfully, but if there are family dynamics, um, may not want, or want to honor the wishes based on some certain situation. And if they don't, there's not a whole lot of recourse about it. If you had a particular way you wanted your funeral to go, and people didn't follow your wish because it was in the will, then there's not uh, any way to fix that as compared to, say, pre-planning with a funeral home, which is a contract and uh, usually specifies the um, requirements or the terms that you wanted. Nowadays, people, I think, in some cases are more particular about how they want their funeral to go. More specific. It's more talked about ahead of time. They're not quite as timid about it, and they're willing to discuss it with their families. Well, what happens if you're, not only funeral wishes, but you are you have a spat with your daughter and you want to take her out of the will? Is that something you can do quickly, easily, take her out of a trust, or is this a, a long process to change those things? When people want to exclude someone from their will or trust, they usually have to say so specifically. Otherwise, the person could suggest or claim that was an accident, mm. and they accidentally left me out, which is called pretermitted. In the absence of something written, the court will usually assume or at least entertain the idea that it was an accident. So when someone wants to exclude an heir who would otherwise be included, they say so, and then uh, they might also add 
a no contest clause if they feel strongly enough about it. What if it's somebody who's already in the will and they want to remove them? They should make an amendment. Mm -hmm. You're that, out. Yeah. <laughs> which is also called a codicil. And that's a relatively simple process, or is that yeah, involved? Yeah, it is. It is? Okay. So what if someone passes away? I mean, this is all well and good, but as we know, many people die without a will. They die without a trusts they die without proper document what happens in new hampshire if someone passes away with without a will or a trust who gets their stuff when they die without a document that's called intestate there's no testamentary statement and then the estate is governed by the statute which is called descent and distribution that identifies who the heirs are starting with spouse children if none of those, then parents. If none of those, then siblings. This is how you get your second cousin twice removed. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it stretches all the way out. So people tend to come out of the woodwork and... They do. They do. Okay. <laughs> so basically, the, the state of New Hampshire determines who gets your stuff at yes. that point. And then okay. that person goes through probate? Yes. Okay. Lucky that person. Mm. <laughs> well, they're getting stuff. Well, that's true. What happens, let's say I have my will, or I have my trust all set up in the state of New Hampshire, but I'm on a lovely vacation and I die. What happens? Do we have to follow the rules in the, in the state that I pass away, or does everything default to New Hampshire where all my legal documents are set up? Well, if you were unfortunately in Hawaii, but were, <laughs> oh, from, so sad for you. were from New Hampshire uh, when you died, you probably have a New Hampshire will you would probably, your remains would be returned to New Hampshire. The probate would be in the uh, jurisdiction of your domicile. So if you lived in Manchester, you would be in Hillsborough County probate, and it would follow your will. Comparatively, if you moved to Hawaii, your New Hampshire will would probably still be effective in Hawaii so long as it was done properly in New Hampshire. All the states will honor the other states' will if it was done right where made. Okay, so you don't have to go to probate where the death occurred. It's all about where you live. Yes, if you were domiciled in Hawaii, then your probate would be there. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So this happened to me not too long ago. We had a lady who passed away, and her daughter um, said she was executor of the estate but lived out of state. Um, didn't have the best relationship with her mom and said, I don't want to be executor. Then what? How does that work? Well, the tricky thing about probate is it doesn't start unless somebody files a petition. So if the daughter was named, but she didn't feel like doing it, then somebody else would have to step up and volunteer. So she's not legally required. She doesn't have to do it. She can oh, say no. I'm all set. No. Yes, mm -hmm. she can decline. Mm -hmm. Is that fairly frequent that people, because a lot of people probably don't find out until they read the will and they say, oh, I'm executor. Congratulations. <laughs> <laughs> it's an honor, but not necessarily a privilege. Mm -hmm. Is it a well-paying job or, or no? It's usually a lot of work, and it's usually one person in the family who winds up doing most of the work and... Um, it's not an easy job. It takes a long time, and uh, sometimes uh, the work is kind of thankless. The person can be paid for their work 
I think they should be. And I always recommend that the person who's doing all that work to clean out the house and find the realtor and, and uh, track down all the bills and pay them, keep track of their time. And later on, at the end of the case, can be paid from the estate uh, some reasonable hourly amount for all the work they did. Can the person, um, can you write into your trust or your will a stipend for that person? Yes. Yeah. And are there such thing as professional executors? Can you, are there, can you hire someone? Obviously, law firms do it, but are there, are there people out there that are executors as a job to executor for hire, executor for administer <laughs> estates, so minimizes family squabbles and independent third parties, or is that not really something that's done? Not that I'm aware of. Okay, uh, but um, number of people have asked me in my office to do the job because they don't have somebody else to do it or maybe we, they we don't. don't go looking for that but right. sometimes we're the default fallback hmm. thank you for joining us on another informative episode of dying to talk i definitely learned a lot if our listeners have any questions about funerals or cremations either in new hampshire or vermont i'm happy to answer them just email me at buddy at finef.net that's buddy at p-h-a-n-e-u-f.net or call me on my direct line at 603-625-5778. Our contact information is in the show notes of this episode too.